Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello and welcome back. This is episode 39 of Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I am Pastor Mark. And today we are entering into the fray of ecumenical conversations, as we could call it. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, And one thing I'll say right at the beginning of all of this is that I think maybe one of the best ways I've learned what it means to be Protestant is simply by studying Mm. the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. By comparing myself and what I believe to against the the teachings of the Catholic Church, I have become more and more aware of what it truly means to be Protestant. A lot of times today we can confuse Protestantism with sort of the lowest church version of evangelicalism. Hmm. And so we think that to be Protestant is to have the sort of fog machines, uh, (laughs) the light shows, the the loud, boisterous rock and roll worship. but in studying the history of the debates between the Roman Catholics and the Protestant reformers, you can begin to see the sort of fault lines. And uh, through those studies that, that I've done in my life, I have become a much more conscientious, uh, reformed Protestant Christian. Uh, but also I've grown to appreciate, mm-hmm. while seeing my differences, my strong differences with the Roman Catholic Church, I've grown to appreciate things about the Catholic Church and to sort of know really what the issues are and to no longer see Catholics through the lens of what my evangelical Mm. brothers and sisters tell me about them, but to sort of know them as they truly are, as they would say. So I think one of the the ways or one of the reasons we're doing an episode on Roman Catholicism today is because genuinely it should be a help for anybody who's trying to see what it means to be reformed. Mm-hmm. I think by comparing and contrasting ourselves to different Christian traditions, uh, be they Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, or even things that are more closer to home as Protestants. Arminianism. Ar- Arminians, yep. so yeah, Wesleyans, Methodists, or even Charismatics. By, mm-hmm. by sort of looking at the, the Christian family tree, so to speak, and seeing where you fall on that tree, it uh, can be helpful in knowing your relation, your similarities, and your dissimilarities to to other Christians, and so it can give you a better perspective of your own self-identity as a Christian of whatever stripe you are. So maybe you're listening to this as a Roman Catholic, and you will see where you disagree with Reformed Protestants, sure, uh, and so on. So we think in that spirit, it's helpful to, to do an episode on this uh, and to, to learn more about the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, I think that there are times when I would even bring up in a sermon a different belief system um, whether yeah. that's an extra sort of non-Christian belief system or something like Roman Catholicism, I'll occasionally mention the Catholics believe this about the Eucharist or, or something. Yeah. And and I think that at times people think that we would only bring up a belief that we don't believe in to bash it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's that's not all, the only reason for bringing something up or yeah. for, for raising an issue. Often it's to learn what we believe more clearly, mm-hmm. um, and, and that doesn't set ourselves up with 
you know, pride or, well, yeah, we just, we got it right and they got it wrong over there. Um, <laughs> that That's sort of how a lot of discourse goes in American yeah. political culture, for for example, right now. Yeah. But um, that's not the reason that we're bringing this up necessarily is to say, oh, we got this right and they got it wrong. Um, hopefully people could have helpful conversations with the Roman Catholic family members. Mm-hmm. Um Friends. I know that that some people who are who listen regularly to our podcast um, used to be Catholic mm-hmm. um, or have Catholic family members, and um, we want to have this conversation in, in charity um, yeah. with uh, love for our neighbors, um, love for our Roman Catholic listeners and brothers and sisters in Christ, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, we do want to to draw up some some lines, some distinctions between what the doctrines that you would hear from a Roman Catholic catechism, for example, and the Heidelberg catechism or yeah. in a, in a reformed church. Yeah. Maybe what we're trying to do here, uh, is, is give our mostly Protestant listening listenership, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a introduction to how to engage and converse meaningfully with, with Roman Catholics. This doesn't mean we're going to give you all the talking points of how to debate them and convert them to be Protestants necessarily, but it will show you sort of uh, what the ongoing conversation between our two sides of the divide uh, have been up to in discussing and sort of what, what are sort of the central points of discussion and what, what, what are also things that we share in common. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's really helpful uh, as, we, as we go forward trying to talk about what spirit we want to do this in and really the spirit behind this is to be both ironic and to do a peaceful uh sort of not po- non-polemic uh sort of introduction into uh, roman catholicism yeah but also to be discerning at the same time so uh zach what would you say are some reactions to catholicism that you've seen protestants exhibit yeah yeah, it depends on which Protestant groups or yeah. stripes we're talking about. Uh, I think most of what I see being in the Reformed world is a very fierce antagonism toward mm. the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Typically, the higher you go in theology, mm-hmm. the more that's going to create some some friction and tension. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a lot of of very sort of hard-nosed Protestants, Reformed especially, uh, often Reformed Baptists, I notice, Mm -hmm. uh, get the most feisty with Mm -hmm. with Roman Mm -hmm. Catholicism. James White. Yeah, Yeah. James White, Todd Friel, uh, John MacArthur. And those guys will have very sharp lines between them and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so that's, that's, that's the more common attitude that I see. Although I, I have noticed also sort of the reverse of that on the, on behalf of Protestants or evangelicals of being so, I don't know, soft on Roman Catholicism that they almost act as if there are really no Mm. barriers at all. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And as the if, ecumenical movement, yeah, yeah. And as as if all of the the divisive things that have happened or doctrines that have been taught for the past five hundred re- years are all just one giant misunderstanding. So mm. let's just sing kumbaya. Yeah, uh, and I think both of those are at the end of the day quite unhelpful, uh, both for the Protestants who espouse those two 
ways of thinking. But it's also really unhelpful for Roman Catholics as they listen to evangelicals or Protestants talking about them. It's, it can be extremely <laughs> off-putting, and actually it, it doesn't really help to continue any dialogue yeah. because there are meaningful things to debate. Uh, but if we're just trying to make slam-dunk arguments and beat people with, with our, our thoughts— we're not going to do any any good either way. Or if anything, we're just going to push people off, mm-hmm. um, and our our positions as Protestants won't have any sort of hearing. So yeah, another reaction that I've seen in Protestantism is just flat out ignorance of church yeah. history, and so de facto an ignorance of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, um, and that's not just an an a innocent ignorance either it's it's at times a bit of a willful ignorance yeah it's just sort of me and jesus um that's what's promoted i would say that's even the prevailing non-denominational mantra that has yeah moved into other evangelical contexts that um we're just team jesus it's just me and the bible me and god and um <laughs> The church almost ex- exists. The only one that exists is my church, yeah, um, or those churches that I see on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is separated from Catholicity, yeah. from uh, and we—I mean that in the lowercase c—Catholicity from the historic, timeless gathering of saints mm-hmm. um, in Africa and Asia and South America and Europe and North America and and Australia. All these different places there are churches and yeah uh, they are they have differing theology to some extent um but at the same time god maintains his church and we should care about our history as Mm -hmm. a church um i may have mentioned this on the podcast before but i'll occasionally meet people from non-denominational contexts uh, which is really that's sort of the booming um form of Christianity in America right now. Yeah. Um, and they would hear that I'm a pastor. They would assume that I planted a church and this mm. church is has just existed um, sort of under my watch. Mm-hmm. And when I'm done being the pastor of this church, that it would probably just fall away. And mm-hmm. then I would go somewhere or and drastically change or change. Yeah. In some According really to the significant way of the, the, the following pastor, right? The pastor just determines what people believe. Yeah. Which is actually a very Catholic. Uh, uh, <laughs> in some ways, yeah. In some way, yeah. Sort of. Uh, there's there's less of a tethering to some real historical, mm-hmm. I would say, biblical mm-hmm. standard, um, and and more to just sort of the authority that's that's present in the local. Yeah, and often this sort of antipathy or outright dismissal of Christian history is seen as a as a good positive thing. It's seen, it's almost seen it taken as an act of mm-hmm. piety to say, Oh no, it's just me and the Bible. Yeah. I don't care about Christian history. And so often reformed people, uh, and I've noticed this over the years is that they think that there's, there's only two options. There's either so much respect for history that you become Roman Catholic, or you must almost sort of openly disrespect Christian history. And that's the, the evangelical or Protestant way of being. Uh, but that's actually not true. It's a false dichotomy. The Reformed <laughs> churches, and not just the Reformed, the Lutherans and Anglicans do a good job of this too, would say uh, 
as as John Nevin's, Nevin has once said, uh, reverence for the past is one of the strongest marks of spiritual maturity, mm. uh, which I think is a really, really great thought. Uh, it's not to say that we revere the past higher than Scripture. Yeah, or we uh, worship saints. Right. Yeah. It, it, but to have a strong appreciation and knowledge of Christian history uh, is is really, really important. And so as Reformed people, I, I hope that we teach that. Um, I think through our, our sermon series we've been doing recently on the Belgic Confession and the evening services at our church, uh, if those of you who may, may have gone to those, I know not everybody who listens to this goes to our church, but if you've, if you've listened to those sermons, you, you've probably caught that we do have a reverence for the past. In yeah. fact, that's why the Belgic Confession goes to great lengths to mm. essentially teach almost verbatim at times what the creeds have taught about the Trinity and the deity of Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's a, a reverence um, for Catholicity, not yeah. just um, church history, but um, mm-hmm. that's part of Catholicity, right? There's a sort of uh, ethos. We talk a lot about ethos yeah. on this podcast, and there's an ethos of repentance in the church, but there's also, uh, like we did a whole episode on that, mm-hmm. an ethos hopefully in every Christian congregation that we are a part of something mm-hmm. far greater than the local congregation to which we yeah. at, at which we worship. And so the, it's universal both in its geographical scope mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in its chronological scope. Yeah. So this is the faith that has been believed and passed on from one generation to the next all across the world for thousands of years. Uh, and so <laughs> and so, if we have any Roman Catholic people listening to this, they might be surprised to hear evangelicals even talk like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I and, think so. It is very strange for, for many of them, especially for those Roman Catholics who, when they do research evangelicalism or Protestantism, they end up finding the big names on YouTube, you know, the Rick Warrens, the Andy yeah. Stanleys. Those guys really don't talk much at all or have oh. much of a open respect for church history. Not to say that they are anti-historical, but it's not really going to come through much in their ministry, their preaching, They would the say interviews. it's not relevant. Right, it's right. Just, actually just yeah. watched an interview, or not an interview, it was a clip of a Todd Friel podcast, the Wretched Radio podcast, yeah. and he's talking about John MacArthur's view of the church fathers. And he says, I once watched a clip of John MacArthur uh, when somebody asked him, what are your thoughts on the church fathers? How do you read the church fathers? And John MacArthur responds, you know, it's been a long time since I've read the church fathers. And Todd Friel says, and that was instructive for me. That's the approach that Christians should have towards uh, the church fathers. Interesting. It just shows that John MacArthur, <laughs> John MacArthur thinks that more recent theologians, like the Puritans, are, are better. And so the church fathers, they said some good things, but really we have purer theology mm. much later in church history. So therefore, we really don't need to read the church fathers. Um, and there's some truth to that. I, w- I would say that yes— as a general rule, theology has gotten clearer and mm-hmm. more biblical mm-hmm. over time. Um, but to, to have that sort of open, dismissive attitude yeah. towards towards church history, I think, is not really actually helpful. Yeah, we need to know where we come from. And so um, maybe we'll, we'll continue through the podcast by thinking about some of the, the values and virtues yeah. of Roman Catholicism and... Um, 
we we give these with integrity and with honesty. We're not just sort of setting things mm-hmm. up for launching into all kinds of uh, cold, hard criticisms. Um, you know, this isn't like buttering someone up before you you <laughs> give them you smash them and you know uh, fire them or whatever from their job. But uh, this is these are legitimate things that we are thankful for in the Roman Catholic Church and the contributions that it's made to Christendom, to mm-hmm. church history. So what what would you say is number one for you, Zach? Yeah, um, man, there's a lot of things. I, I, I think this sort of summarizes a few different positives all in one, but the Roman Catholic Church has in many ways been a ballast for the greater Christian church, uh, especially in the modern age 20th century uh, the 20th century and, and before that as well but really the 20th century and the 21st century that sort of stuff has become clear that as the protestant churches have in many ways fractured over very divisive debates regarding human sexuality uh, regarding the role of women in ordained roles uh, and, and other sorts of things uh, how to interpret the bible Abortion. Abortion. You can't. You got to hand it to the Roman Catholic Church for holding pretty steady yeah. on all, on all of these issues. Gender identity, um, all that. Yeah. yeah, and it's some of the the great Catholic intellectuals today that are writing some of the most interesting and profound responses and cultural critiques of these sorts of things. Uh, so Ryan Anderson on transgenderism mm-hmm. uh, would be a good example of that. Um, so Catholics have a really profound tradition and or intellectual tradition. They are mm-hmm. a very thoughtful bunch, whereas Protestants in the 20th century, <laughs> that's more up for debate. More fickle. There, there were some very thoughtful Protestants, and thankfully. Uh, but some of the, the fundamentalist groups within Protestantism in the 20th century did sort of deservingly garner the reputation of being Mm anti-intellectual. Catholics really can never be considered anti-intellectual, even by those who deeply hate them, uh, such as the sort of third-wave modern feminist movement. Uh, You can't can't really tell the Roman Catholic Church that they are not at least (laughs) deep thinkers. Uh, You may deeply disagree with them, but they have a strong tradition of, of thought. Yeah, Bish- um, that they are built on. Bishop Barron uh, talks about being in a debate several years ago, and um, he was in a debate with an atheist who um, was raising all kinds of big questions about you know the problem of evil, some of the mm-hmm. things we talked about in previous podcasts. And um, this atheist had the attitude towards Bishop Barron that he was introducing some issues to Bishop Barron that he or the Catholic Church have hardly ever thought about before. And and he's like, I just had to laugh because this is the kind of thing that, that we talk about all the time, that, that we would talk about even if nobody in popular culture seemed to care about it. Yeah. We would continue to care about um, the problem of evil and uh, challenges to the faith and yeah. teach our, our, our people um, sort of... Uh, Christian philosophy and, and yeah, if you want proof of that, of look at Thomas Aquinas, who in yeah. the, the mid- Middle Ages, nobody's really questioning the existence of God, yet he's <laughs> writing in depth on the existence of God and his yeah. his Summa Theologica, uh, because that's what 
Christians do. They think about things. They think deeply. The big things, and and I think it's a great example <laughs> of how people in our world, it's like, uh, will just generate a, a doubt or a, a question, and mm-hmm. our detachment from the past will make us think we're the first person who's ever wondered these things, mm-hmm. and that's why Bishop Barron told the story was the church. Um, including the Catholic Church, has been mm-hmm. asking these questions since Christ ascended yeah. to heaven. You know, we've been trying to to work things out. Um, of course, I wish that they would do so with Scripture more than just mm-hmm. with natural philosophy and mm-hmm. um, edicts from different mm-hmm. uh, church councils and so forth. However, we have to respect that they've been working these th- things out for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. So there's a deep intellectual history and sort of along with that something that i appreciate uh is their reverence for the past for church history um and this these are sort of tied together but i think part of what makes the catholic church so strong is that it's unchanging now as protestants we would have some some slight disagreements uh with an unchangeable church uh, basically because we don't believe in an infallible church uh, whereas the Roman Catholic position essentially teaches that the church is infallible. Um, but this, this this strong reverence for the past, to use John Nevin's phrase, uh, has helped them in many ways to be sort of immune to being tossed to and fro by the culture of the 20th and the 21st century. Uh, and so, yeah, some of the some of the most thoughtful people writing on some of the cultural shifts right now that I know are, are Roman Catholics. This, mm. is what, this is what makes a magazine like First Things mm-hmm. so edifying uh, for me as a Protestant. Uh, there, there are Protestants who write for it, but it's interesting to see what those across the Tiber, uh, so to speak, are, are saying and thinking about. Yeah, and um, along those lines, um, one thing that I certainly appreciate about Roman Catholicism is not just today, but in previous centuries um, and even millennia, um, the preservation that Hmm. has happened of good things in Roman Catholicism. So um, simple things like art and literature and Hmm. um, the the scientific method in a lot of ways um, originating out of uh, Hmm. the Catholic Church. And uh, something amazing like uh, modern genetics being discovered by a monk named mm-hmm. Gregor Mendel. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's that emphasis on beauty, on um, mm. a desire for truth, a search for truth, yeah. uh, a search for God. Um, and that leads in all kinds of interesting directions. Yeah. And so a lot of that has happened in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, they've preserved Western culture uh, pretty well through the monasteries. Yeah, um, I've never read the book. I forget what it's exactly called. It's about how Irish Catholic monks and monasteries helped pervert, preserve the Western tradition through uh, the, the fall of Rome. And hmm. you could also say the same about St. Benedict. Yeah, the uh, Benedict option is yeah. all about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... That's something to be commended about for the Roman Catholic Church that they have upheld so much truth for so long, um, but there's there's also things we could say to sort of counter that. As Protestants, of course, we have 
our disagreements. Although I do want to emphasize one more thing mm. that you did mention is their appreciation for beauty. Mm. Um, now, as Protestants, we'll have different opinions on on this um, icons and and statues and depictions Art. of God and so yeah. on. Um, but there is something to be said about the beauty of of Roman Catholic the Roman Catholic tradition, and this is seen, of course, most uh, viscerally, you could say, in in their architecture. Yeah. Um, there's something ha- that happens to you uh, when you walk into a, a beautiful cathedral. There's a reason why secular people still go to yeah. Canterbury and Durham and yeah. Chartres, you know, and all these places. Yeah, or to cathedrals. the Vatican or, yeah. or, or, yeah, these beautiful cathedrals, Notre, Notre Dame, uh, different places. There's beautiful cathedrals in Germany that are Roman Catholic yeah. cathedrals. Cologne. These sorts of things are not without meaning. Uh, you know, as reformed people, Mark and I would have a more simplified view. I think Mark more than me. We could go mm. back to our high church, <laughs> low church episode uh, of just sort of having a simple reverence for the Lord and not needing all the or or uh, adornments in, in a church. Um, but there's something to be said about the the, the how that that sort of high art and beauty uh, pushes us to to uh, to think beyond our flat material realm uh, and to it even captures our attention and it causes us to look up. And so there's sort of a transcendence there mm-hmm. uh, that, that is captured, I think in a really cool way that is still, especially in our very secularist uh, scientific uh, materialist world today in our worldview our social imaginary as Charles Taylor would call it. Uh, we are, we live in a very flat universe. And so it's beautiful things like that, that can actually sort of rip us out mm. of, of that flattened universe and cause us to see the world as it really is. I, I think so. That's something I also yeah. really appreciate. And I think a lot of people who convert to Roman Catholicism convert for all of these reasons that we've mentioned. Yeah. Uh, it's strength of orthodoxy. It's, it's, it's a desire to stay rooted in the past and it's beauty. Some people just are captured by its, aesthetic appeal through yeah. its music uh, or its architectural design and so on. Yeah, and there's a lot of power in those rituals and um, in architecture in um, yeah. a gathering in a impressive place. Um, mm-hmm. We both, Zach and I, have listened to a podcast, Mortification of Spin, which mm-hmm. is a great podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, their episode this week is about a woman who uh, wrote for Cosmo and uh, lived a very secular, non-Christian lifestyle for many years and mm-hmm. converted to Roman Catholicism. And you get the sense in her story that um, so many of, so much of her life was a lie, so many things around her were in turmoil. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think of her life as being like a rock tumbler where it's everything's just getting turned upside down constantly all the time. Yeah, she's telling, telling the story of how she how they were told to write stories that were full of lies yeah, in, Cosmo. in order to push a certain sort of social agenda in yeah. the, the magazine. And then and then in the end, she, she says several times, when I converted to Roman Catholicism in 2003, you know, mm-hmm. it was like this this uh, entrance into something solid. Yeah. And that's the appeal that many people have. I've, I know of one Christian Reformed minister who has now converted to Roman Catholicism. I was mm-hmm. talking on the phone with them a few months ago, and mm-hmm. he basically said, um, I I like that the church um, leads me yeah. and has some historic 
precedent behind it yeah. um, in this age of constant change, which mm-hmm. really has always been happening, but change is, it's is, is, yeah, it's definitely increasing. I mean, generational change from one generation to the next is so different now mm-hmm. that uh, it can feel, it, it can be very existentially appealing. It's like the ground to, is shifting beneath our feet constantly. Yeah, yeah to walk into just a, a Catholic church where things haven't changed. Yeah. And, yeah, there's and a, people like that. There's an Orthodox book, an Eastern Orthodox book written against Reformed theology by a former Reformed guy. Was, went to Westminster Seminary in California. Um, I think his name is Josiah Trenham. Um, but he makes a, he, the book is something about a, the play on building a house on the sand versus building mm. a house on the rock. And mm. his argument is that the Orthodox tradition, and some Catholics, most Catholics would say the same about the Catholic Church, Protestants, are building their their house on the sand, essentially the shifting sand, whereas Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy are like building your house on the rock. So that that's the pull yeah. for for a lot of people is that solidity. Uh, and insofar as Protestant churches building their churches on cultural trends, that is true, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is happening again mm-hmm. in the non-denominational movement. Much of the appeal of the church itself in those cases is exciting music, a great yeah. experience, um, you know, all the audiovisual stuff and a, a very encouraging and enlightening TED Talk, mm-hmm. you know, type sermon. Mm-hmm. And so that is building your church on the sand, your house on the sand. And a, yeah. a Roman Catholic would be right to criticize that mm-hmm. trend, just like we do in the Reformed <laughs> Church as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we're, we're thankful that some of those criticisms do come um, from a, a place of wanting the church to be sustained and thrive and grow. So um, yeah. so we we do appreciate much of the Roman Catholic tradition and uh, even as it's manifest today in, in a lot of beautiful ways. However, um, I think that both of us would obviously agree that the biggest errors, the biggest problems in the Roman Catholic Church would be theological in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... What are some of the big ones where we would say any Roman Catholic listening really needs to search in uh, into these these matters? Yeah. Well, I think it, uh, we have to start with the solas, right? The five solas, um, but particularly there's three solas that are the big differences between us and them. And so the first one I, I think is sort of the probably the the most important of all five is this is sola scriptura uh and the perspicuity of scripture the sufficiency of scripture mm-hmm. and so this is sort of i think the dividing line between protestants and catholics it's where a lot of a lot of other issues are downstream from this one. Yep. It all yep. goes back to what does the bible say and if if the bible is actually the sole authority uh, for theological discussions, mm-hmm. and so for the for the Protestant who upholds the historic view of sola scriptura, we could say that there's a non-historic view of sola scriptura, which just says me and my Bible. That is not sola scriptura. No, sola scriptura is simply to say that the on, the highest and and only infallible authority in the life and doctrine of a Christian or of the Church is the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not to say that there are no other authorities. I think we've made clear now that we think that the Christian tradition, Christian history, should be should be a helpful guide in how we yeah. understand Scripture. We can read John Calvin or 
or St. Augustine or Athanasius or Bernard of Clairvaux. You can read these guys and see, oh, they're saying helpful things that help me understand the Bible better than I would if I had only read it on my own. So in that sense, the Bible or the, the church has a sort of a guide. It's, it sort of functions as a guide into what the scriptures are actually teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that being said, it's whether or not the Bible actually teaches something or not. And so Sola Scriptura is is fundamentally, it's an epistemological dividing line between yeah. between us for how we base what we know and how, how we uh, say we believe something or don't believe something. Uh, so the Catholic Church, there's different views of the interrelation yeah. between tradition and the Bible. There's some there's some who would say that there's a two-source authority. So there's the scriptures and tradition, and they're almost on the same plane. And then there's a view that really equates more to the Eastern Orthodox view, which sort of sees, it's not so much two different sources or dual sources, but it sees scripture as a part of the greater source, which is called tradition. Uh, so there's more of a, a unified understanding of scripture and tradition uh, that scripture is just happens to be a written form of mm. tradition so it's on the same level as tradition but it's just the written permanent form and so a lot of their theological beliefs for roman catholics come down to well the scripture is not exactly mm. clear on it like mm-hmm. the assumption of mary there's not any passage that really talks about the assumption of mary explicitly or even implicitly I'd be interested to hear if a Catholic could find some implicit thing. Uh, But it's usually using different inferences from Scripture about, well, Mary, you know, she is the blessed one. She's the bearer of God, which we would uphold, the Theotokos. And they sort of will take take that, and they will have other other assumptions about, well, okay, let's say the perpetual virginity of Mary. They'll say, well, that would have made her impure in some sense. And so in order to retain or uphold her purity. And to uphold the incarnation um, sort of uh, after the fact even. Yeah. Yeah. So they will say she was perpetually virgin. Basically she was and remained a virgin her whole life and didn't ever have intercourse with Joseph. Uh, Even though the Bible talks about Jesus having brothers, there'd be some sort of, uh, explanation for this Maybe about a spiritual how they're, explanation they're, they're they're relatives but they're not actually physical biological brothers mm. they're more like cousins or maybe joseph had a had a wife before mary or something um and so they would use sort of inferences to build a doctrine mm-hmm. which is now a, a dogma uh in the roman catholic church this goes for uh yeah the perpetual virginity of mary the immaculate conception of mary that she's born without sin and the assumption of mary where she was assumed bodily she ascended bodily into heaven and did not die um and so and this issue also leads to venerations of saints praying praying to saints and praying to mary um each of those is supported by church tradition yeah. And we would say is an extra biblical and even I would say anti biblical yeah. idolatrous teaching. Yeah, exactly. So we we would find nothing in the scriptures that give us a clear warrant for believing those things. Uh, we actually we would say we have every reason to believe that Mary died, that Mary was conceived in sin, just like the rest of of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, and that Mary uh, had sexual intercourse. Yes. Um, so we're not really 
going to go in that direction based because, on the scripture. Yeah, because, because it's the not, scripture like... just has the final say. <laughs> yeah, uh, and there's nothing in scripture that gives us any clarity on those on those things, and so we're left to simply assume yeah. things. And uh, to to put a give an example of um, where this really leads to error. Um, I, I was listening to a Catholic priest recently on YouTube and. Um, he was talking about how salvation works and he said, well, this guy, I don't, I don't know if the entire Roman Catholic church believes this, but this Bishop said, yeah, it's totally possible for somebody who is, is not a Christian to be saved. And, um, and somebody who's not worshiping Christ to be saved. And, and he, he basically says, here's the reason he said, the reason is that as long as they live, to the best of their ability, according to their conscience, um, God has placed that conscience in their heart as a kind of uh, representation of his law. And so if that person does live in a good conscience, um, that person can be saved. And um, I kept thinking, where is he getting this from the Bible? (laughs) Where would the Bible say anything remotely close to that? Mm -hmm. And he gave, I believe, three supports from church histories from council hmm. councils uh, that have gathered you know I, maybe there was a renaissance era one a post-reformation era one and a more modern one where um hmm. where councils decided that this would be true and so um john calvin has a lot to say about councils in his commentary on first john um when the scripture talks about uh testing the spirits seeking the spirit mm-hmm. seeking the guidance of god um he says we should actually do that, says John Calvin, instead yeah. of just assuming that whenever the church gathers, this happens automatically. Mm-hmm. So looking in the past, you can find all kinds of examples where church councils gathered and they decided what was against Scripture, against the Spirit of God. So mm-hmm. God's Spirit will never contradict the Bible. That's mm-hmm. a, I think that's a basic that's Christian a sort view. Sort of axiomatic statement. Yeah. Um, yet... In many cases throughout Roman Catholic history, mm-hmm. church councils have directly um, contradicted the Bible. Pope Francis did this mm-hmm. uh, when talking to the, the sad little boy about mm-hmm. his father. Um, and uh, the sad little boy said, my, my father was an atheist. Um, hmm. He was baptized, but he was an atheist. He, he didn't follow God. And now the little boy who's, who's very sad and we should feel sorry for him said, is my daddy who died in heaven? And um, the, the Pope said, well, he was baptized. And so hmm. he was saved essentially by the church. Hmm. Um, and so that's, that's just not, it's not sola fide. It's not sola gratia. Yeah. It's not sola scriptura. Yeah. Um, it's really a rejection of, of some very basic yeah. doctrines of and Christianity. And there are plenty of councils in church history that have been conducted by the pre-schism uh, church between, before the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church uh, split in 1054, mm-hmm. um, where there was councils that they would decide one thing and then eventually it would actually just never stick and nobody would ever hold mm. to that council. Mm-hmm. They would, the councils would be disregarded. Um, and in fact, there's some sort of measure for how councils are deemed to be truly ecumenical now looking back but in those in the moments of those councils it was thought that this is an ecumenical council and then it wasn't until 
decades, maybe even centuries later, that that would be deemed not a true ecumenical council, and therefore it had no weight. And so they would decide all these things, but it actually uh, would be deemed later on to not be true, to not to not have uh, much meaning or significance. Yeah, and, and, Cal- so, and Calvin says councils are good in First, yeah, I mean, in first John. He said it's good. That's we still a, have councils, right? That's, an organ, that's a good organized way to get yeah. together to discuss important theological matters. Acts 15. However, don't assume that because the church is doing something, it's automatically... Yeah baptized and um, officially the word of God, mm-hmm. especially when there is much of God's word that would contradict what a council decided. Yeah, that's, this is why almost all of the ref- reformational confessions, uh, like the 39 articles, uh, the Belgic Confession, Westminster, um, even the Augsburg Confession from the Lutherans, would all have some sort of statement in there saying councils can and do err. They're not infallible. Um and so this is why mm. Protestants have historically placed even the proceedings of the Council of Nicaea, known as the Nicene Creed, under the authority of Scripture. Yeah, uh, it's because that's not an infallible council. Even though we uphold the truths of the Nicene Creed, we say that these are biblical truths. Yeah, these must be believed, and we, these must be taught even. Uh, but we we don't say that those are actually more important or on the same playing field as the Scriptures. Uh, so there's a distinction that has to be made. So that's yeah. sola scriptura. <laughs> we could move on to the sort- soteriological differences between yeah. the Reformed or Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so we could say sola gratia and sola fide, which are sort of all connected, all the doctrines in there. By grace uh, alone, by faith alone. Right. Yeah. So we would say simply... By the grace of God, we are given faith, and that faith alone is what saves us. Not any works, nothing we do to earn God's salvation. No cooperation course, with him that yeah. that contributes to our salvation. And so as Reformed people, and even good Lutherans I know, we're, we're all pretty monergistic here mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that this is what God is doing. Now, there, of course, there are Arminian Protestants, uh, Wesleyans being a good example, who would have more of a synergistic view. Uh, which would approximate, in certain ways, the Roman Catholic view, mm. although th- with the the grand distinction that it's not works. There's not there's no works involved on our part for salvation. And of course, the passages for this are are well known. Romans three, uh, twenty one, really through the, through twenty eight. Mm. Um, Ephesians two is is a classic. It's a must. Yeah, when you were dead uh, in your sins, God saved dead, you. Dead in, in sins, but God, yeah. Uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And that that word this actually refers to both grace and faith. So faith is not your own doing, but this is the gift of God, right? So mm-hmm. that is a huge passage. Uh, Galatians 2, being uh, dead in sin, crucified with Christ. Um, Galatians 2.16, Paul gives a very clear uh, teaching of, of justification by, by faith alone uh, as he's rebuking Peter. Uh, for Peter's uh, sin of falling back and of uh, abandoning the Gentiles and becoming too warm and cozy with the Judaizers when they were they would come into town, and so Paul gives a good expo- exposition of justification there. Now, of course, people Roman Catholics especially will want to turn to James chapter two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are not justified by by faith alone. Um, yeah, that is an interesting conversation, but the simple best way of reading that which is i think clearly the most true reading of that text 
is that James is not talking about faith in the same sense that Paul is talking about faith. Uh, James is, is talking about a dead faith, a faith with no works. Yeah. Paul is talking about if you if you have a true faith, you'll you're saved by that true faith, and that true faith will bring will have works, will be accompanied by works. Yeah, the fruit of the spirit. It'll be evidenced, yeah. yeah, by works. And so that that's a, there's a certain kind of faith. And and the, my proof of that is James two fourteen, where he says, Can this faith save you? No, it cannot. A dead faith cannot save you. A faith without works cannot save you. So he's mm. talking about a specific kind of faith not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about uh, in his letters. Yeah, I think a, a helpful way for people to think of the difference in salvation between particularly Reformed theology and Catholic Roman Catholic theology would be how long does it take? So the Reformed view is that salvation happened for every person hmm. throughout history in, in the work of Christ. Yeah, It happened through Jesus' death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so when Christ's proclamation that it is finished, it meant that we are justified and reconciled then, to then. God. Be- then, it happened then, and it is applied to us now. It's manifest yeah. in our regeneration. Um, we have faith um, in God, and we are uh, exhibiting all kinds of things that show that, that Christ died for us and has yeah. filled us with his Holy Spirit. Whereas the Roman Catholic view is that justification is more of a process Mm -hmm. and i I do think we're being very fair because i think that a roman catholic theologian would would agree with that statement that justification is a process that Mm -hmm. requires uh repent uh penitence um confession uh, participation in the sacrament Mm -hmm. both uh baptism one time and the eucharist weekly um and so all of those things I don't know if they would say contribute to salvation, but they are a a they are included in sort of that work of salvation. Deal. Yeah, versus something that has happened and is a gift. This is why the Reformed tradition has always upheld Calvin's teaching on what he calls in Latin the duplex gratia or the double grace, which is to say that salvation uh, part of our salvation is our justification, which is an instantaneous change or transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light yeah. that happens in the, in the life of a believer. Uh, it could happen unbeknownst to them. It could happen at a time where they, they don't remember it ever happening. They don't know when that sort of moment was. Yeah. Um, and so some do most probably don't. Also yeah. justification. If that ever happens for anyone, it's also going to come with the other part of that double grace, which is sanctification. Whereas the Roman Catholics and sanctification, by the way, is that sort of lifelong process. Yeah. Roman Catholics tend to, uh, see these two as one and the same yeah. almost they they there's not as much of a strong distinction between justification and sanctification so that salvation to them is is as mark has said more of a process yeah now i i i can't say that i've i am the expert on all the debates that have gone on here <laughs> but i from what i've known and read and been taught I think we can say as Protestants that there's a sense in which we are saved or have been saved. Mm-hmm. We are being saved. So there's a sort of ongoing salvation in some sense. And then there's a future salvation. This could get into some well, polemical, interesting, controversial grounds. Those uh, who have been chosen will be justified. Those who have been justified will be, or those are called. Yeah. And then those who are called are justified. Those who are justified will be glorified. Right. Yeah. So that sort of gets to that point. Yeah. So there's a, there's a future 
uh, fullness of salvation that we're looking forward to, right? Yeah. We have been saved. Our, our We've been justified. The, the righteousness of Christ has been given to us, applied to us. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is and irrevocable. And God is still working on us. Yeah. Uh, so you, could say, uh, you could say that's a sort of ongoing salvation in some sense. And then we're looking forward to being you know, with the Lord and being face-to-face with him uh, and the new heavens and the new earth as he's making all things new. Uh, and so that could, you could sort of see that as a final salvation. Now, I know that in the Reformed world, this is a big in-house debate on how to think through these things. Uh, I may have misspoken, so <laughs> Well, it's, it's really about security, though, right? It's about yeah. eternal security. Yeah. So the, the Reformed Christian can have, I'd say, more security yeah. uh, with our doctrine because it's something that Christ achieved yeah. for us. Yeah, and whereas the the Roman Catholic must continue to do these things, mm-hmm. and in order to, and, and that that is a part of salvation. Yeah, you must stay within the sacramental system. So doing yep. penance uh, and confession and and so marriage. So, on. so staying in that in that state of grace essentially, and so that's where they have the distinction between menial sins and and sort of mortal sins, sins that take you out of that state of grace. And so you mm. have to do more penance in order to, to get back in. Um, yeah. So one of the things we could, I appreciate there is that they have a strong emphasis on repentance. Yeah, right. Uh, and but, confession. But it can yeah. strip away that assurance of faith. Yeah. Whereas, if you don't do this, then you could lose it. You yeah. could lose everything. Yeah. And so um, maybe another it's a little bit related to that um, would be of the great errors in Catholicism would be the uh, doctrines of papal infallibility. And um, within that, probably the perception of the priesthood, um, Hmm. maybe also within that their theology of the Eucharist and how um, this is something that uh, particularly with, in terms of the Pope, um, is something special about those people that is different than somebody who is not ordained and a member of the priesthood. Almost ontologically different. Yeah, um, and especially with the Pope and how mm-hmm. just about every Catholic I've ever met thinks about the Pope um, would... Well, we would, still can grant indulgences, right? That's that's like still a thing. Yeah, indulgences are still in the Catholic catechism, um, mm-hmm. have not been removed, and, and a lot of people think that in the Counter-Reformation, oh, well, hopefully they cleaned all that John Tetzel indulgence stuff up. Well, I had a he, history prof who had a, a an indulgence paper, like a certificate <laughs> that he got when he went to the Vatican and heard, uh, I think it was John Paul II, give some sort of speech in front of the crowd at the Vatican. Um, yeah, which, and so indulgences, to get back to Sola Scriptura, would be so far and so flagrantly outside of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's actually mind-boggling to me how far outside the gospel. The there are ways of, of they sort of nuance what indulgences are and aren't, and they try to sort of explain it away yeah. a little bit. But. So maybe for those who are a little bit newer to theology and indulgence is this, um, you can... Uh, give money or pray for someone else and l- lessen their time in purgatory or, yeah. or even contribute to their salvation. Yeah. Um, and so in the, in the Reformation era, a man named John Tetzel would go around saying, um, when a, 
a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. And um, man, and, he could have been a good rapper. Yeah, and and so this is actually what funded the painting of the Sistine Chapel uh, and the work of Michelangelo there, and and so again, it's so far from the ministry of Christ and from yeah. the uh, yes, Jesus tells the parable of the friend in the middle who who goes to care for his friend by bringing him the bread, and that's a reference to prayer and how we should pray for our friends, mm-hmm. but um, church edicts and councils have warped that teaching of Jesus so badly to make um, to make it possible that we could do something that could even save yeah. another person or contribute to that person's salvation in a uh, in a profoundly fundamental way mm-hmm. um, that that's that's just not biblical so yeah. Um, so yeah it's all sort of wrapped up in church authority. Mm-hmm. And how the church has, in, in the Roman Catholic Church, an authority to at times do things that are extra biblical, mm-hmm. um, like uh, this belief in pope, papal infallibility. Um, yeah. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that the pope says is necessarily wrong, um, but yeah, even even point. having a doctrine of papal infallibility, that there could be a time when a man would be incapable of doing what is wrong yeah. is an extra biblical So it's when he's teaching. speaking ex cathedra, which is means technically it just means from the chair, but it's yeah. sort of when, it's, when the Pope speaks uh, in such a way that it, it, it's going to be an infallible thing. So there's only been certain times in history where this has happened. The Pope has to sort of make a formal statement that he is speaking ex cathedra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this doesn't happen all the time. Uh, it's rare. We just looked it up to see how many times this has actually happened. And according to one person I read, that's it's happened only seven times in the past 2000 years. So yeah. it's quite rare, but the idea that the Pope can speak in such a way is, and not be wrong, not possibly be wrong. Yeah. yeah. That, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> a lot of Protestants misunderstand that theology, and they yeah. would say, "You think whatever the Pope tweets, you know, that's that's infallible." That, that's ex cathedra. Yeah, that's no. not true. That's not what their doctrine says. But what yeah. we're saying today is, even having a doctrine of papal infallibility is extra biblical. Yeah. Like that, that could ever be the case. Neither of us would ever say, in this moment that's coming, that's going about to happen, I am going to say something uh, that is absolutely infallible and cannot cannot possibly go wrong. Yeah. That, having a doctrine that would enable me to do that would be, I would and say, again, not it's not again, it's not, there's no biblical passage that teaches that, but it's built on the accumulation of inferences about the church or the Pope's role over time. Um, and actually, I think church history it's quite clear that the Pope's role grows and grows and grows over time. And then that more, more things can get added to his role because there's more sort of things that are presumed about what his role is. Whereas if you were just to compare it to scripture, there's not much that yeah. uh, you can, you can say, yeah. even if you can make the argument that Peter was the, was the rock himself who the church was built on and he was the first Pope. Uh, does that, get you all the way to papal infallibility? I'm not too sure no. about that. Um, and so maybe a, 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 a lightning round here of maybe a few <laughs> other issues. Yeah, and then them all out. We'll get to uh, uh, the big question at the end that we want to say is, are Roman Catholic people Christians? And so we hmm. do want to get to that topic. But um, in addition to some of the papal issues, 
and related to that would be, I would say the disconnect between the priests and the laity. Um, like you said, a kind of an ontological separation yeah. between a monk or priest, a holy person, yeah. and a regular lay person. Yeah. Um, there, there, it is very clear in First Peter that we are a priesthood of all believers. Um, we are a nation of priests, yeah. um, a, a holy nation. Um, in Revelation, it talks about being a kingdom of priests. And um, so therefore we all have a priestly duty in the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and um, the Roman Catholic church too. It, um, it formalizes that too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, my sense, I could be wrong. I would love to hear a Roman Catholic push back on this, yeah. but the, ordination makes you a different kind of person <laughs> in the Roman Catholic church. Whereas in the Protestant churches, sort of the historically minded Protestant churches, ordination is simply it, it's it's your office yeah there's it's a recognition offices. of some gifting there's there's nothing to say that you're different or on a different playing field or that you're called to live a different life yeah um than different rules else. like not being allowed to marry right. for example yeah yeah uh, it simply means that the office that you are in is a different vocation than than other people sure uh we're, we're Christians in the pew who have work in businesses or they may work at hospitals or at schools uh, and such, such uh, they had the same vocation as you, uh, but there's a different office, uh, yeah. there's a different way that you're supposed to be working that out. And so it isn't the person that becomes special, it's just the role that they take on. That's, a, that's the sort of distinct role. So as a pastor, it's a distinct role, but that doesn't make Mark or I any any. Difference. Yeah, we don't have a set of rules that it's, we are supposed to follow that no other person right. is. So it's an ambiguous distinction. Some some Protestants or evangelicals, modern evangelicals, have such a low view of it yeah. that there's really no difference at That's all. The Roman Catholic counter to Protestantism is anyone becomes a pastor without yeah. without any yeah. ordination even. Oh, I'm a pastor. I ran into a guy at the gym once <laughs> yeah. who said, hey, I'm a pastor too. And I said, well, where, what church yeah. are you pastor of? He's like, oh, uh, you know, there's a church in LA somewhere where I, I think I, I taught a few times. And mm-hmm. and so that was, to him was, yeah. hey, I'm a pastor, man, just like you. And I'm like, yeah. uh, actually, it's, yeah. it's a little different than that. But mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I was any better than him or I had different rules that I was following that he wasn't. But um, yeah. but at the same, so it's like, you want to be in between that sweet spot in that sweet spot of like formalizing too much the priestly mm-hmm. role, um, and, and calling that different than mm-hmm. what any other person uh, really does. Every person is called to preach the gospel, yeah, to share the gospel. Um, yeah. every person is called to, uh, into a life of Christian service and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at the same time, we do have ordination that recognizes particular gifting in the yeah. church, um, like it says in in the New Testament, uh, that there will be some set aside for preaching and mm-hmm. teaching, um, and, and we believe that that's, it's not a special class of person, yeah. but it is a, a spiritual gifting. This is why they see uh, ordination as a sacrament. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's part of why it becomes an ontological difference, or it's a difference in being. So an ordained person is really just so different from a lay person, and that's why, in sort of to make up for that, marriage is also a sacrament because that's sort of what makes right. lay people different it than the clergy. The scale a little bit. <laughs> uh, so there's just two sacraments, 
which is to me it's just strange logically that not not all Christians can have all the sacraments then yeah um, you're only going to get to have six instead that, of the full seven in the Catholic system that's a huge thing and so another one would be the relationship between church and state we see we've talked about that in other issues yeah. where the church is regarded as above the state mm-hmm. um, instead of uh, in more of the, of the reform view um, mm-hmm. certainly Christ is above the church and Christ is above the state absolutely um, but uh, we've two seen arms that he uses yeah we've seen all throughout history where that has gone very wrong where um, the church desires to exhibit um, influence sort of as the church over the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, church pope, as state. I think it's Pope Gregory the Seventh and King Henry the Second. I might, might have my Henry wrong, but I know it's hmm. Pope Gregory the Seventh, And that was all they fought about. That's, hmm. that's uh, the, the famous Thomas Beckett um, mm-hmm. controversy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see this all over the place. Popes calling crusades. Um, popes... Yep. Uh, doing things in in history because of the bad theology mm-hmm. um in political contexts that yeah. um that really are outside of of their you know my kingdom is not of this world said Christ um, right before his death so yeah. um there is a kingdom in this world the kingdom of god but um the reformed view is as i would say more robust in its um, I wouldn't say separation between church and state, but distinction between church and state. Yeah, yeah. yeah seeing them as two different ways that God exerts his authority yeah. over the human world. Yeah, and so we do need to get to this big question that a lot of Reformed Christians have. Can Roman, our Roman Catholic believers saved? Are they on their way to heaven? I, both Pastor Zach and I think uh, yes, that mm-hmm. uh, the, in the same way that somebody coming to our church right now, we hope is saved by Christ, by grace, through faith, um, but yet there remains that possibility that somebody who is a member of our congregation who is not born again, yeah. Um, yeah. the same kind of thing, of course, could be happening in the Catholic Church where many regenerate individuals are sitting in, Roman Catholic churches, and they are worshiping Christ. They are um, communing with Christ. They have received a legitimate baptism. They believe in the creed, um, the Apostles' Creed. They believe in the Word of God. Uh, They rely totally on Christ for their salvation. Mm -hmm. There are many regenerate Roman Catholic people. Yeah, some some people might say, well, they don't have the same exact soteriology or doctrine of salvation with your justification by grace alone through faith alone. Um, we would say, well, actually, because we believe that, we believe Roman Catholics can be saved. Yeah. Because we believe the Protestant doctrine of salvation, we believe that Roman Catholics can be saved. That it's by grace. It's not by our membership in a Protestant church that right. one is saved. It's or by God's grace that yeah. and, anyone. And d- despite your membership in a Roman Catholic church, you can still be saved, we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So they affirm <laughs> the creed. Yeah, that's a big part for me as well as the affirmation of the creed. Yeah, and um, it would be helpful probably to know that in a in a Christian Reformed Church we accept a Roman Catholic baptism, but here's a helpful yeah. distinction. But we would yeah. not accept a Mormon baptism. Yes, because the Mormon does not hold to the creed, does not profess Christ nearly in the same way that that uh, that we would or that a Roman Catholic would, and so. We are uh, we are bound together through God's word, 
and through um, yeah through things like the creed uh, to Roman Catholics. And but we want to get to the next. Um, I wouldn't call it a, a caveat, but it is a um, an addition to to that teaching. Yeah, it's a follow up. Um, it's a follow up. Yeah, we we do take the errors of the Roman Catholic Church very seriously and recognize yeah. that these unbiblical doctrines like prayer to Mary, um, trusting in an icon, um, lighting the candle for uh, that that person that you know, and and really believing that you're actually doing something that is changing a, a spiritual reality in somebody else's life mm-hmm. um, or unbiblical theology of justification. We, both of us, have seen where those unbiblical doctrines actually take center stage yeah, and the gospel itself, the creed, um, communion with Christ, uh, repentance, forgiveness of sins through Jesus, actually fade, um, you know, reliance on God's word, a love, a love for prayer, um, personal connection to God through piety. Mm -hmm. Those things fade away. And what actually becomes the main part of the religion is the bad stuff. Yeah. So the superstitious stuff. And this isn't to say that all Roman Catholicism is superstitious. No, actually we want to always, and we hope that Roman Catholics do this for us. We want to judge Roman Catholicism or any other group of Christians uh, communion or denomination of Christians uh, on its best, in its best form, mm-hmm. by its best thinkers, by its best and truest expression, and not by its sort of worst form. So when, yeah, by when, the straw man. When Roman Catholics talk about Protestantism, I hope they're not dealing with Joel Osteen. You know, that, that <laughs> right. wouldn't be fair. Right. Um, Just like we're not dealing with Pope Urban II, who called the Crusades, and that's the only Catholic <laughs> yeah. who we can think of. Or, yeah. or the sort of syncretistic Roman Catholicism you see in South America with the Santeria sort of stuff, and it really becomes superstitious, superstitious, and sort of mixes in uh, cultic, uh, magical sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, that's that's not a good thing to do. But it is interesting to think about. Um, how theology in Roman Catholicism filters down to the popular level mm-hmm. versus how in the Protestant world it filters down to the popular level. Um, Roman Catholicism, as it filters down, can become very superstitious, and it has a tendency for doing that. And so the question then becomes why. If you yeah. look at the Protestant or evangelical world, which I think that those are kind of distinct words, but they yeah. are, they run in the same sort of system, it can turn into an antinomianism. It turns Just into grace a alone. I can do whatever. Yeah, I can do yep. whatever. Live no, no cares. God loves me, so I can you know get smashed on the weekends with my friends. Um, right. No big deal. And so those these can lead to different problems. And so that's another interesting way of thinking through the two the two uh, denominations yeah. or two traditions. And in both cases, where the issue becomes the main desire for one's devotion to these religious systems whether it's a protestant who just loves that you can do whatever you want because there's this doctrine of grace that's not a christian Yeah, you've missed the point that's not christian you're not a christian yeah and then in the same way for the roman catholic if you just think well the priest i heard somebody who was baptized in the roman catholic church once a co-worker at Hmm. the sporting goods store said uh the the priest baptized me so i'm good to go yeah. And so the whole mentality was the church did something mm-hmm. for me and so that's my ticket to heaven. He basically Good said Roman that. Catholicism wouldn't say that. No. But but that's what he got. But and, that's a it's a perversion right. of the gospel 
that is present, certainly, it, that could be present in a Protestant church too, yeah. but um, we would say if the main thing for some people is reliance on Mary, mm-hmm. uh, how beautiful these buildings are, mm-hmm. how sentimental it is, and how, how sweet it is Pray that the they do profession and catechism class and it's so cute for the kids, um, if that's the main part of yeah. one's Catholicism, that person is unregenerate and will not be saved uh they're not showing faith yet at least we would say um there's still hope of course for that person um but uh but what we have often seen what i've seen in my own life is those those bad parts of catholicism do take center stage uh too often (laughs) before we recorded we, we talked about how both of us have listened to catholic radio and there are you're gonna hear prayer to mary on Catholic oh, radio. Every hour, basically. Yeah, and, and every prayer, even, that I've ever heard on Catholic yeah. radio is offered to Mary. The Hail Mary, um, grace. Which, that's so, so if one were to listen to that and say, that's my faith, that is not Christianity. Yeah. It, it is purely idolatry. And I, I think, as a Protestant, I have about as much respect you can possibly have for Mary, calling her the Blessed Virgin. Like, I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah. I cannot get over the the hump of prayers to mary mm-hmm. or to the saints and i know i know the explanation from it from a roman catholic person right they're just as alive if not more alive than our friends who we ask to pray for us so often there's the prayers of saint so-and-so pray for me saint so-and-so this pray yeah. for me uh i i get that but I just cannot get behind it. And nope. especially the sort of prayers of Mary, the queen of heaven, all these sorts of things. Well, we see prayer as worship. Prayer yeah. is worship. Yeah. And so it's to worship a person. Yeah. And so for us, that is a huge problem. Um, yeah. Can't get over that one. Yeah. It's not just the Catholic will say prayer is conversation. Yeah. And so therefore one could pray to Mary and, and, and a dead um, loved one yeah but that's not like what prayer is that's not what prayer is in the bible yeah. that's extra biblical definition of prayer and prayer it, is to yeah. to go to the lord um, yeah lord alone we want to be as ironic and as understanding as possible but there are lines there are strong distinctions um but even even that i will say the the creed the fact that we hold the same creeds is huge um I, and I, the reason I say that is because I think the creed contains the gospel. Not mm. to say that the, that if you want to teach somebody the gospel, you have to help them me- memorize the creed, the apostles or the Nicene creed. But if you were to go somewhere, somewhere to a, a unreached tribe in South America and you were to have 30 minutes mm. and you somehow could speak their language and you told them the apostles' creed and told them the basics of it, I think that they could be saved, yeah. Uh, because the gospel that 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 includes the gospel. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism says, "Well, what are the articles of the gospel?" And it quotes the creed. I believe that's question and answer twenty three, mm. somewhere in there twenty three mm-hmm. twenty four, because the, it knows that the Apostles' Creed is a helpful summary of the gospel. And yeah. if somebody knows what knows it, not just the the creed, but what the creed means, that's. I think salvation. Yeah. Uh, and so, and maybe, maybe wrapping up, we would say, certainly we believe that one can be a Christian in the Roman Catholic church, but, mm-hmm. uh, 
given the seriousness of some of those errors, it would be far better for that person to uh, to leave the Roman Catholic Church and enter into a mm-hmm. solid, uh, lowercase c, Catholic, mm-hmm. um, Protestant church. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I, I do believe that some of those errors are so serious. Um, they are idolatrous. Uh, the, the view of transubstantiation becomes idolatrous, I think, in mm-hmm. terms of how the bread and, and the wine are even handled. Um, oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's the monstrance I, too, where they go around. They actually just everybody will just bow to it. They'll even proceed in city streets in some places with the Eucharist, yeah, a golden sort of and thing, and worship that, and everybody will bow to it. It's not even for the taking; it's just for yeah. observing it. Sometimes people will sit in front of the sacrament for hours hmm. uh, and not not partake. And that is not what it's for. It's <laughs> take, eat, do this in remembrance right. of me. It's to be eaten, and that is how communion is. Yeah, and so we would say we invite any person into um, a, a a more biblical Christianity um, to to depart from the Roman Catholic Church um, because there there are better options theologically certainly um, than that. However, if 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 somebody's listening and my grandma who just died recently was always a member of the Roman Catholic Church and she was faithful and she prayed to God every day and and loved Jesus, relied on him, we're not damning her to hell by any stretch here. Um, but, the reverse might be true. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Catholics struggle to sort of give the same yeah. gracious statement to Protestants. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, and I know Eastern Orthodox people really are uncomfortable with doing that. We're yeah. basically outside the bounds of salvation. Yeah, and, and so, uh, hey, think about these things seriously. That's what we want to do on this entire podcast, not just this episode, but... That's the the point of the the whole podcast here is to dig into some yeah. uh, some scripture, some reformed theology, um, and uh, and and measure everything against uh, against God's word, like the Bereans did in Acts seventeen. So, um, yeah, amen. So hopefully this has been helpful. And again, I'm I'm sure we have uh, listeners with some thoughts on this matter. <laughs> and yeah. so we'd Any love Roman to Catholic hear them. Friends, Andre, if you're listening, <laughs> let's talk. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> So, so thank you for listening and for uh, sticking with us on this longer episode of Reform Podmatics, and God bless you in the rest of your week. Yeah, grace and peace, you guys.